Well, good morning. It is a joy uh, to be with you this morning and to once again open God's Word with you. And I'd invite you to take your Bible and, and turn with me to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23. Last night, or last night, last week, we looked at Psalm chapter 3. We looked at trusting God in the midst of a fallen world. How do we trust God when, when everything around us seems difficult? In following that theme this morning, I want to look at living faithfully in a fallen world. I want to follow that theme of navigating life in a fallen world by asking the question, how can we live faithfully in a fallen world? And to do that, I want to turn to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23, this morning we're going to be looking at all 16 verses. And in order to just help us wrap our minds around this chapter, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Joshua chapter 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he has promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you but they shall be a snare and a trap for you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off of this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evils, things, until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you 
and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at Joshua chapter 23. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, that you have redeemed us and we do come before you to bless you, to lift up your name. Lord, as we come to the remainder of our time this morning, as we look at how we can live faithfully in a fallen world, Lord, help us. Help these truths to go deep into our hearts. Help us to glorify you in all that we do, regardless of what the world is doing around us. Lord, help us now to understand and to see from your word that we have everything we need in it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Famous last words fascinate our society. As a result, volumes of books and numerous websites are filled with famous deathbed sayings, or maybe infamous deathbed sayings. Karl Marx, his famous last words were these, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Sometimes last words are are hopeful. Beethoven, the, the famous deaf composer, his last words will, I will hear in heaven. Sometimes last words are meant to inspire. George Harrison's last words were, love one another. Something is intriguing about last words, especially when they're poignant and powerful, when the person giving them wants to persuade the people around them, to give them something to remember as they live their lives. Scripture contains numerous records of farewell addresses and last words. But you see, unlike many of the famous last words in history, the last words of the Bible are are much more serious and they carry a more profound significance. Scripture contains the famous last words in the Old Testament of of people like Jacob and, and Moses and David. In the New Testament, we have the last words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And John devotes four chapters of his gospel, John 14 to John 17, to record the last words of Jesus the night that he was betrayed, the last words that Jesus wanted to give his followers before he was with them no longer. If you knew you were about to die, what would your last words be? What would you tell your family? What would be the last thing you say to your friends When all is said and done, what would be the last thing you want to tell those around you? Joshua 23 records the last words that Joshua wanted to give to the leaders of the nation of Israel. In verse 1, Joshua says he is old and, and well advanced in years. At this point in the book of Joshua, he's over 100 years old. And scripture says that not long after this farewell address, he died at the age of 110. And Joshua had lived a long life marked by faithfulness. Whether he was leading the Israelites to defeat the Amalekites shortly after the Exodus, or he was exploring the land of Canaan before the conquest, or succeeding Moses and and leading Israel into the promised land, Joshua was a portrait of faithfulness. He was a man who wholeheartedly loved 
trusted and obeyed the Lord. Joshua was a man of faithfulness. By chapter 21 of the book of Joshua, Joshua had led the nation into the promised land. He had divided that land amongst the nations. And now in this final section, Joshua chapter 21 through tw- or 22 through 24, Joshua provides three farewell sermons. In chapter 22, he addresses the two and a half tribes who are to live east of the Jordan River. In chapter 23, he gives a farewell address to the leaders of the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 24, he gives a final speech to the entire nation. Verse 2, we see that Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers. Joshua is dying. His time on the earth is fleeting, and he had instructions that he wanted to give the nation. But he understood that he needed to give a special charge to the leaders. So he calls the the people's representatives, those in charge with leading the nation, the tribes, and the subgroups. As Joshua sees the end of his race, he is eager to pass the baton to reliable successors. He wants to give the leaders of the nation of Israel God-given insights for faithful living. And his primary concern is their faithfulness. Understanding that the nation of Israel was dwelling in a land where idolatry was pervasive, where immorality was widespread, he wanted to provide them insights to faithfully honor the Lord amidst the temptation and to live faithfully in the midst of a fallen world. He desired to encourage them to faithfulness. And while years are separating us from Joshua and the conquests, we understand living in a life surrounded by those who do not know God. 1 Peter 1.18, Peter writes to believers and he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of the exile. In chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are sojourners and exiles on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. And yet, we live in a fallen world. The society that we're surrounded by denies God and disregards his world, his word. Sin shows its effects in in the moral evils that we see every day. Like the nation of Israel, we too live in a culture where idolatry is extensive and immorality is widespread. A culture that R. Kent Hughes says, sweats sensuality. We live in a society that calls evil good and good evil. This is what we experience every day. We face challenges similar to the nation of Israel. And so in Joshua 23, Joshua wanted to encourage the nation and by extension, you and me to faithfulness. Joshua 23 contains unchanging lessons for us today. Lessons that will help us live more faithfully when we apply them to our lives. In Joshua 23, we will see three foundations for living faithfully in a fallen world. Three foundations for living faithfully in a fallen world. 
lessons to help us live faithfully to God. And the first, the first foundational truth for faithful living that Joshua gives is we are to remember God's work in our lives. We are to remember God's work in our lives. We see this in verses 1 to 5. This address comes a long time after the nation of Israel had entered the promised land and the Lord had given them rest from their enemies. And Joshua, understanding the battle that these leaders had in front of them, tells them to look back. Joshua begins by telling his audience to to look back, to remember the work that God had done for them in the past. Look at verse 3. Joshua says, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. Not only had God rescued the nation from Egypt, but they had witnessed God bring them into the promised land. Joshua tells them to look back and and to remember their crossing of the Jordan River when the water stopped and the ground was dry. To look back and to remember the fall of Jericho. And to remember, as the children's song goes, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. He says, remember. And notice here that Joshua is emphasizing God's active role. It's it's God who has been doing this work. He says again in verse 3, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Israel did not defeat their enemies because of their strength or their might, but because the Lord fought for them. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. Look at what Joshua says. He says, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you. They were winning battles but not because they were the biggest or the strongest. They were the underdog. Nevertheless, they were winning battles because God was fighting for them. Israel could not achieve any of this on their own. Israel proved to be a thousand times stronger than any of their enemies for one reason only. The Lord their God fought for them. So Joshua reminded Israel of of God's past work in their lives to encourage them and to motivate them to remain faithful. But notice that Joshua is not only reminding them of God's past work in their lives. Joshua is also reminding them of the work that God has promised to do for them in the future. Look at verses 4 and 5. Joshua says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Joshua reminds the nation that just as God has been faithful to do what he promised in the past, he will continue to fight for them in the future. God promised them the land and God will remain faithful to that promise. But how exactly will the Israelites take hold of the land? Verse 5 says that God will push back their enemies. But verse 5 also says that the people must take possession of the land. Notice this, this nuance that Joshua is pointing out. 
God has been faithful to fight for them and will continue to drive out the nations. But he is also calling Israel to remain faithful to take the land. For Israel to possess the land, they must be faithful to do their part. Israel must expel the the nations that remain. See, many parts of the promised land still contained remnants of, of these other nations, and Israel needed to drive them out. And so looking back at what God had already accomplished would be powerful motivation for them to press forward in faithfulness. Dale Ralph Davis commented on on these verses. and He said, Joshua wants those who remain to be sure of God's help. And he grounds them in this assurance by appealing to God's recent activities and to his previous promise. Both God's action and his word should support them. And if God's promise had proven true to date, surely it was adequate for what lay ahead. Joshua reminds Israel of God's past work in their lives to encourage them and to motivate them to faithfulness. May we benefit from this lesson today, for the same is true of us. As Israel was to stay faithful to God by remembering his works, so too we ought to remember God's work in our lives. If we want to live faithful in the midst of a fallen world, then we must remember the work of God in our lives. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Remember the work of God in your life. Believer, recall all that you have experienced of of God's rich mercy Think back to what Paul says in in Titus chapter 3 when he says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Believer, remember God's work in your life. Remember the the circumstances of your new birth. Remember the the assurance you received when God forgave your sins, when when you realized that Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Think back to your baptism to your public declaration that that Christ saved you and raised you to walk in newness of life. Think of the sanctifying work of God in your life, your, your increased desire for the things of God and your increased repulsion of the things of this world. Think back to the work of salvation in your life. Recall the the sanctifying work of your life, even in this last year. And as we take communion today, let it be a reminder to you of the work of God in your life. May communion be, as Kevin DeYoung says, a reminder to our eyes, our hands, our noses, and our mouths of the good news we hear with our ears. And may we remember the work that God has done in our lives. And may that motivate us to remain faithful. How does this play out? 
people. As we struggle with anxiety, we are to remember God's faithful and loving care for us in the past. He's been faithful in the past and he will continue to be faithful. As we struggle with with sin and temptation, we remember the work of Christ on the cross, not only to, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, but also his work to defeat the power of sin in our lives, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We need to remember the work of God in our lives. And as we remember that, as we remember what God has done for us in the past, it will motivate us through even the most difficult of times. And not only should we, like Israel, remember God's past work in our lives, we also need to remember what God has promised to do in our lives. That God promises to to complete the work he began in us. That he will one day glorify us and, and bring us to himself. And let that be a reminder to motivate you to live faithfully in the midst of a fallen world. We have many mercies from God to recall. We have many reasons to praise God, let us remember God's work in our lives. So the first foundation for faithful living is to remember God's work in your life. The second, the second foundation to living faithfully in a fallen world is to obey God's word in your life. To obey God's word in your life. And we see this in verses 6 to 11. Joshua tells the people to be strong and courageous. And and while he is talking to the nation of Israel in the context of of military battles and and capturing the land and, and driving out other nations, he's not talking about their physical strength. Instead, he's calling them to stand firm on God's word, to be strong and courageous no matter what is thrown their way. Look at verse 6. Joshua says, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. This command had, had previously been placed on Joshua in chapter 1, and now he's placing it on the leaders of the nation of Israel. He says, you are to be strong and courageous. You are to lead this nation in such a way that is strong and courageous. And notice the emphasis that Joshua places on obedience. He says, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written. The standard of obedience for Israel and for us today is God's word. How is this obedience supposed to look? Uh, In what ways was this obedience supposed to manifest itself in Israel's life? Well, we see it in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says they're they're not to turn aside from God's word either to the right hand or to the left. Verse 7 says they're not to mix with these nations or serve or worship their gods. How was the nation of Israel supposed to keep all that the Lord had commanded them? They were to be a separate people. They were to be separate unto the Lord. Joshua warns Israel not to let the people and the culture around them negatively influence their thinking and their action. He warns the Israelites not to have social parties with the Canaanites because if they did, they would adopt their their pagan and idolatrous tendencies. You see, just as Israel 
was not supposed to be negatively influenced by the nations around them. If we are not careful, we can begin to rationalize what we do because of the opinions of those around us. And it happens so subtly. Well, you see, other people are doing it, so I should do it too. Well, my friends are doing it, and so it's okay for, for me to do. You see, there's this subtle encroachment on how we reason our actions and our thinking, and we must be careful to guard our minds. Joshua here is warning Israel not to be conformed to the practices of other nations. He's saying, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. He calls them to obey God's word no matter what the nations around them are doing. Look at verse 8. Joshua says, But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Now that word cling, it's a strong adhesive word. It's a, it's a binding term. It's a term used of something that when two things are joined together, they are never pulled apart. It's the word used in Genesis 2.24 to, to speak of marriage. To refer to a man holding fast to his wife. He is to cling to her in such a way that the two become one flesh and they are never torn apart. The nations were bowing down to their idols. The nations were committing immoral acts. And Joshua's response to Israel is to cling to the Lord no matter what's happening around them. They've been faithful up to this point, And his plea is, do not falter now. Believer, no matter what is happening around you, cling to the Lord and obey his word and do not let the world influence what you love or how you act. Joshua says, be strong and courageous. And it's important to note that, that this text is not a call for us believers to separate ourselves from living in a fallen world. The whole point of this passage is they are living around unbelieving nations and how are they supposed to live? We are to be in the world but not of the world. Jesus says that in John, John, in Matthew 5, that we are to be salt and light. Philippians chapter 2, we are told we are to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And I think you understand what it feels like to live amidst a crooked and twisted generation. So it's not a call to, to go live and separate ourselves from everyone else. Instead, these verses remind us that our lives should be guided and directed by God's word and not by the world's standards. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Believer, do not let the world around you shape you into its mold. You see, Joshua's concern for Israel is that mixing with these pagan peoples would predispose them to idolatry and immorality. And there is a warning for us here about idolatry. You see, we often think of idolatry as something that happened in the Old Testament. You know, Oh, yeah, they worshipped idols and carved statues and images. But idolatry is still common in the world today. 
In some parts of the world, idolatry still does involve worshiping images and statues. And if you go into L.A., you will find that. But in most of Western culture, only a few people are, are bowing down to idols or, or making offerings to statues or worshiping carved images. But idolatry, idolatry is a temptation for all of us. The attractiveness and appeal to idols were and still are numerous. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 14 warned about idolatry, about worshiping idols in our hearts. John Calvin famously said that man's nature, his heart, what he's inclined to, is a perpetual factory of idols. You see, idolatry can creep in so easily. And an idol is, is anything that replaces the worship of the one true God in your life. An idol is something we devote ourselves to or trust in for satisfaction, for security, or salvation. An idol is anything we love more than God at any moment of the day. One author defines idolatry this way. He says, an idol is more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value, and then I'll feel significant and secure. Our culture daily parades its idols before our eyes. Whether it's insisting on, on what we must have, or, or how we must look, or what we need to be happy, idols are everywhere. So ask yourself, is there an idol in your life? Is there something that you're valuing more than God? Is there something besides God that you're trusting in for your security? The government, the 401k, your Bitcoin. Is there something that you're trusting in for your security and your satisfaction. Because you see, it is so easy for us to maintain a, a, an appearance of faithfully worshiping God while at the same time harboring idols in our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is why Joshua says in verse 11, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Solomon in the Proverbs, who understood temptation and understood replacing something else with the worship of God, wrote, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, like Israel, we must avoid idolatry. So how do we guard ourselves against idolatry? How do we keep ourselves from idols? One commentator said this, the way that we conquer idolatry is to make this Lord our God. And the way that we do that is to be obedient to all that he says in Scripture you see the motivation for this obedience that Joshua is calling for is love of God. He says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Their motivation to live faithfully in the midst of a fallen world was their love for God. 
And that would no doubt remind them of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 6.5. That they were to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And notice this. That the love of sin, the, the idols in our hearts, can be expelled only by the love of God. Only a greater love and affection for what God has done for us will push those idols from our hearts. You see, they were to display their love for God and their obedience to his commands, and the same is true for us today. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our love for God is to motivate us to faithfully keep his commandments. How do we live faithfully in a fallen world? How are we to navigate being in the world but not of the world? What are we to do when it feels like the culture around us is antithetical to everything in God's word? We are to obey God's word and we are to cling to him. Remaining faithful to God and not succumbing to the pressures of this fallen world around us requires careful obedience to his word. You see, the pressures that we feel from friends, from coworkers, from society all around us are real. They can be a temptation and if we're not careful, they can affect our decisions. But as believers, we must cling to God despite what the world around us is doing. And just as the nation of Israel could not win their battles without the Lord fighting for them, as believers, we are utterly dependent on God to strengthen us to live faithfully. We're to constantly be in prayer because as Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. So how do we live in a fallen world? Well, first, we remember God's work in our lives. Second, we are to obey God's word and finally, we are to consider God's warnings in our life. Consider God's warnings in your life. We see this in verses 12 to 16. Joshua's final insight for how the nation was to faithfully live is a little different than the first two. Rather than a command or an exhortation, it comes in the form of a warning. Up to, up to this point, Joshua had encouraged them didactically, if you will. But now he encouraged them with a warning of the consequences that they would experience if they turned away from God. He says, Israel, if you do this, then this will happen. If you turn away, then God will not drive out these nations before you. If you turn away, these nations will become a snare and a trap for you. These are the consequences that the nation of Israel would experience if they turned back and clung to the remnant of the nations remaining around them. That word cling in verse 12 was the same word used in verse 8. Joshua is telling the nation of Israel that they are going to cling to one of two things. Either they'll cling to the Lord or they'll cling to the nations and their gods. Joshua tells the nation of Israel that they have a choice to make. Friends, each of us has a choice to make. To who or to what will you cling? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot serve two masters. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is whether we will serve God or whether we will associate ourselves with the world. Verse 12 begins with this phrase, turn back, a term that would deliberately recall the history of Israel since the Exodus. You see, since their departure from Egypt, the nation of Israel faced numerous temptations to go back. Oh, why can't we go back to Egypt? There we had food, we had meat, we had fruit. Joshua tells Israel that if they turn back and attach themselves to these nations, there would be dire consequences. Dear Christian, each day we face temptations to go back to our former manner of life. All throughout the New Testament, there are exhortations to not go back to the sins that we were saved from. We face temptations in our workplace, at school, while we watch TV, while we scroll feeds on our smartphones. Each day, we face temptations. And each day, we must resolve in our hearts to cling to God and not to this world. To say with the hymn writer, take the world and give me Jesus. See, John warns about this love of the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has, has light with darkness? They're antithetical. They, they do not merge. Joshua warned Israel that they were to remain unstained from the world. And we as believers need to listen to this warning carefully. We need to be diligent in keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And then Joshua concludes his speech in verses 14 to 16. And he bases this warning in these final verses on God's faithfulness. Look at verse 14. He says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. He reminds Israel that God is faithful and that everything that God says comes true. What an amazing truth about God. Joshua wants the nation, and by extension, you and me, to know and understand that God's faithfulness is a double-edged sword. It's a two edged sword. You see, God's word never fails. Whether it's a word of promise for blessing or a promise for punishment, Joshua's reminding the nation of Israel of the Mosaic covenant that they would receive blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. We know from the rest of the Old Testament that they chose to disobey that they intermarried with the nations, that, that they worshipped the pagan gods, and God was faithful to punish them through the Assyrian and, and Babylonian captivity. We need to reflect on this reality of God's faithfulness. You see, we often only think of God's faithfulness in terms of his blessings, and we should meditate on that truth. But we must remember that, that God is just as faithful to bring about blessing as he is punishment. That God is faithful. And if you are in Christ, this is one of the most 
comforting truths that God is faithful. God has been faithful to his promise in Genesis 3 that a seed would come and crush the head of the serpent. God has been faithful to his promise in Isaiah 53 that he would send Jesus, his suffering servant, to bear our sins on the cross so that faith in Christ were forgiven of our sins, were adopted as sons. But we must not forget that just as God is faithful to bring about blessing, he's also faithful in his warnings to believers. That as Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And that God is faithful to discipline us in our unrepentant sin should be a motivation to faithfulness. And if you're not in Christ and you're here today, God is faithful to his promises to judge sin. But please hear this. God is faithful to his promise of salvation. The good news of the gospel that Jesus calls sinners to come to him and he provides rest. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is faithful to his promise that those who come to Jesus will not be turned away. That God is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to his promise in 1 John 1.9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is faithful. Friends, how are we to live faithfully in the midst of a fallen world? How are we to live when it feels like the world around us is against us? When the culture around us praises immorality and perversion and calls black, white, and white, black. When there's temptation on every side. Joshua provides us a blueprint. That we are to remain faithful to God by remembering his work in our lives. Sending Christ to die on our behalf and to rise again three days later. To remain faithful by obeying his word, by clinging to him out of love. And finally, to rem remain faithful to God by considering his warnings of discipline. May these truths be motivations to us as we go this week to be faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your word and your clear instruction. And Lord, now as we take communion, Lord, may we confess our sin and may we worship your work of salvation. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.